0: We would fall at your knees, God, at your feet, on our knees, and God, we would say, Holy Spirit, fall on us, revive us, even as Nick comes up to speak right now, God, that Holy Spirit, you would be tearing off the shutters that hide our eyes from seeing you, God. Just anoint Nick's words and and clear out our ears so we can hear from you right now, Jesus. In your name we pray, Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 31 and 32. And if you guys would stand with me, if you're able, as we we read our our two verses today before we we dive in. This is Jesus speaking uh, in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 31 and 32 Matthew 5 it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery go ahead and be seated so not likely that they pay me enough to preach this sermon right so, recognize that uh, many of you are, are here, and you're trying to decide how to posture yourself right now. Uh, some of you are just curious. I wonder how he's going to unpack this, what he's going to say. Uh, some of you are uncomfortable, wondering if you have to kind of have a defensive posture. Um, I, I get it. I understand that all of us have been touched in one way or another by divorce, Um, Many of us, uh, very personally, many of you have gone through divorce, Uh, many of you um, are possibly contemplating, praying about it right now, um, or are in process. And so we are going to trust, and I'm going to to trust that God's uh, Spirit will protect us, that God's Spirit will inform us through the living power of His Word, and that uh, as a body and as a a corporate, uh, hopefully, unity, uh, that we will continue to strive for God's best in striving for His holiness and His perfect ideal, while at the same time, uh, I believe it's designed to in to love towards one another and know that God has our best in mind. Um, and so, as we, as we dive in, take a couple deep breaths, and, and we're going to get through this. We'll be, we'll be a-okay. Uh, I'm preaching in a t-shirt and jeans today. And there's kind of a reason. If you took this one isolated wardrobe choice and you made and surrounded uh, your doctrine about me in this, uh, you could be mistaken. And so if you took this and you say, well, because some of you think, well, I like that. That's kind of nice. It makes me feel more comfortable. Some of you are really uncomfortable and think, well, that's straight up wrong. Uh, Some of you might think, well, I don't think that it's wrong, but I just think it's poor taste. Uh, Regardless. Uh, what camp you're in. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong in your opinion, but you would be in error if you took this one Sunday and you, you took it all the way to the extreme in saying, well, if Nick, Nick thinks it's okay to teach in a t-shirt, that must mean he thinks it's wrong to preach in a suit. You'd be wrong. Or Nick thinks it's okay to preach in a t-shirt, so you always should preach in a t-shirt. Well, you'd be wrong. And so my point is, it's, it's very dangerous to take one isolated situation to take one isolated piece of Scripture and to build your life, uh, your your doctrine around that one isolated situation or one isolated piece of Scripture and in doing so uh, it's dangerous to then apply your life around and to fit in that or to take that and critique others because if you run this to the extreme you'd say okay well Ben doesn't preach in a t-shirt therefore Nick hates Ben. No, not really. And Evan Hayes does, so he's okay with me. But you, you, you see my point. If we, if we take one moment and we apply these things in, in hard and fast rules, we get in trouble. And I think the same applies for uh, these two verses on divorce. I think the same uh, it, for all of the Sermon on the Mount, really. That this is not Jesus' intent, and this is not God's full teaching on marriage and divorce in these two chapters. So we need to let this inform what we believe about marriage and what we believe about divorce. But uh, very dangerous to build your entire doctrine on it. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife gives her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I believe that Jesus' main point in the Sermon on the Mount... As you, as you pick up this theme, he says, you have heard it said, but I say, okay? And so I think he's addressing the inaccurate way that people in the religious culture of that day, he, he's addressing the inaccurate way that the Pharisees are approaching God and the way that they are approaching his law. And so in a sense, he's saying, you're, you're going about this all wrong, uh, not only are you wrong in your approach to God, but he needs them to know that they are wrong in and of themselves. And so really I think that Jesus is doing in, in a way what he always did while he was on earth is he was pointing out their need for a savior and he was inviting them to receive him as a savior. Years ago, I was probably in my 20s, I was in the A-frame over there at church. Uh, I was up with the high schoolers for a while and Chuck Blackler was teaching the middle schoolers. And so I got done and I went down to, to, to listen to Chuck. And right when I walked in the door, he said, you can get to heaven two ways. And Right when he said that, you know, my ears kind of perked up. I thought, whoa, I've only heard of one. Uh, and he said, be perfect or through Jesus Christ. So we understand what Chuck was doing, right? He was trying to teach these, these young adults that God has a standard of holiness and it's perfection. And it's given that they know, that we know, we are not perfect. Therefore, we're left with one option. Jesus Christ. And so I think Jesus is doing a similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of just camping on anger or lust or divorce, he's he's painting this big picture that says the Pharisees' approach to God in a sense, was to take and look at all these little rules and try to cherry pick them and try to, try to bend them, uh, try to create little loopholes so that they could, could feel right according to what they did with God, and then also kind of condemn others and, and control the environment there. And so, like Chuck, I think, I think Jesus is, in a way, he's, he's raising the standard for which they're used to measuring themselves. He's saying, one, your standard's off. But two, as you, as you try to measure yourself and justify yourself, um, he, he's closing the loopholes and he's not making that an option. In a sense, he's revealing that to be right with God, you must be perfect in your thought, your word, and your action. If you're going to be right with God based on your own merit. And of course, he's making obvious and kind of bringing clear into focus that this is impossible. Earlier, he talked about uh, same, same, same book, he talks about the sick need what? Need a doctor. The sick are who need healing. And so he's pointing out to the Pharisees and others listening that, that one, you are sick and you need healing, the great physician, and two, your definition of health isn't even correct. So because you don't even have a correct definition of health, you don't know that you're sick. And so Jesus, in a way, is redefining uh, what holiness is. He's redefining how we're going to, to become right with God. And once again, it's an invitation of, to receive his salvation. It was very helpful for me uh, in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, ben taught Matthew 5.20 uh, that that is, is kind of the, the framework to, to understand the rest of Jesus' sermon. And I think uh, he bookends this piece of scripture. So Matthew 5.20 says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So again, he's saying the definition of righteousness that they're using is no righteousness at all. That's not health. And then he finishes this little piece of the sermon, with Matthew 5:48. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if we look at these two statements, I think it really helps us understand what he's getting at when he talks about um, calling a brother a fool is like murder, and looking at a woman is like committing adultery, and, and all of these things. So again, the Pharisees' approach was external, it was self-motivated and self-justified, and it promoted comparison with others, which led to pride or condemnation. And so one of the things that also helped me understand this is thinking the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And so the Pharisees would would be guilty of looking at the law of Moses and the scriptures, simply the letter of the law. And so that might be defined as as establishing religious rules by taking portions of scripture, uh, taking them out of context, applying them to certain situations and or certain people. Uh, instead of applying them to all situations. And then again, kind of of cherry-picking these rules and bending these rules and twisting these rules for their own selfish gain. And then standing on, this is what the law of Moses says. As opposed to the spirit of the law, which I believe is what we are called to do when we're trying to interpret a piece of scripture, is we take a piece of scripture like Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and we hold it up against the whole canon of God, all of the scriptures and see how they interact, relate, and compare to each other. We interpret it through the, the reality of God's character being holy, perfect, just, and loving. And we, we evaluate a piece of scripture in the lens and through the lens of God's love and holiness and perfection and the enduring power of his word. And so you recognize the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. I'll give you an example. Uh, I coach baseball, so on occasion I'll take a group of young teenage boys to men uh, on road trips. And I might say, all right, one rule, no no girls in your hotel room. And obviously the spirit of that, my point and my intent and my motive, and you'll see this in Jesus' sermon, is to honor God's purity, to hold in place his design for sexuality and relationships between men and women, it's to protect them from terrible consequences, it's to protect them from choices that would bring destruction upon others, it's to be a protector of females, and so all of this you can gather, oh, that's why the rule is in place, but a a pharisaical approach to this might be, well, you said... I can't have girls in my hotel room, but you didn't say anything about having girls in this other guy's hotel room, right? And so very easily they take what I said, they take a piece of scripture and they, they, they manipulate it for their own selfish gain and then they stand on it to justify and say, I didn't break any rules. And so I think that's what Jesus is combating here in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's his, his main point and objective. And yes, he's going to give us some guidance in specifics. He's going to kind of redirect some of our values of what we deem as right and what we deem as wrong as it pertains to lust and anger and oaths and marriage and divorce. But please be sure to to look at these passages of Scripture and look for uh, the Spirit of God behind it. What is he trying to say? So in regards to this, this piece of Scripture on divorce, Uh, the the Pharisees would would probably say something like this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 talks about uh, issuing a certificate of divorce when you send your wife away. And if you do that, um, there's just a couple rules. Be sure if she remarries and then gets divorced from her second husband or if he dies, don't marry her again because that would be a defilement. And so they're thinking through this and thinking, okay, he's, he's allowing certificate of divorce as long as I don't do this and this and this. And so they take that and they, for their own selfish gain, they use this uh, certificate or this action to, to divorce women uh, one, one reason or another. Okay? And so you can see how that is not God's intent and point or why he even gives an allowance, which we'll talk about, for divorce. And so Jesus is trying to, in my mind, uh, reveal the selfishness of their heart simply by the question they're asking, saying you're asking the wrong question or the comments that you're giving or the scriptures that you're pulling out um, to justify is, is evident that your heart is not in the right place, is evident that you are not approaching God or people in the way that I desire or design. So in some ways I think he's closing all the loopholes and once again he's shutting all of of us up underneath sin and saying one, you are in desperate need for someone to act on your behalf, a savior. And two, we need to be very careful that we recognize God's looking at the heart of men and women as opposed to simply these external actions. And that's what he's trying to get at here. Matthew 5, 48, again, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I think part of what he's doing to, to finish off this portion of his sermon is, is saying, You're striving for perfection. One, you cannot do it. I need you to see that. Uh, two, you're, that will never get you right with God. But once you have received the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ by his blood, being shed and poured out and taking upon your sin. Once you have received him as your Lord and as your savior, that his spirit invades your heart and makes you new. Once that has happened, then the most natural thing for that heart to do is continue to strive for that ideal. Continue to see the perfect law of God and to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live in a way that is in line with that. To to align your heart with God's heart, knowing that I need you how I need you, every hour I need you. Jesus is trying to say, as he is your savior, now this is what we strive for. His perfect plan. So again, if you look at God's main point and then you you hone in or spotlight uh, this teaching on divorce in verse 31 and 32... Uh, can be very confusing to try to figure out well where does he land and all of us here are trying to figure out what is our stance on this uh do we believe in it do we not believe in it do we hate it do we allow it is it always wrong what's our stance on this and i think in malachi god says god hates divorce and we hear that all the time right and i think god does hate divorce because it violates his original intent and his original design for man and for marriage. But in the same book, God says that he hates when we dear treacherously or fraudulently with our spouse. And he says that six times. So that tells you that God hates a lot of things. God hates sin. And any time that we disobey God, any time that we come out from underneath his authority, we sin and it's destructive to us and it's destructive to others. And so I think part of our focus must be, yes, fight tooth and nail for the covenant of marriage. And also fight with everything you have to love your spouse. I think God understands that his ideal is not met on earth. That doesn't minimize his ideal or his design in any way where God created man in his image to reflect him, to be his image bearer to the world. Yet, because man and woman have come out from underneath that design, because we have not trusted in God's love for us, and we have decided to play God ourselves, because we have been disobedient to God, that that image is completely violated, completely distorted, completely marred. And so, God hates that. But yet, he enters into the mess that we have made, and he, he makes redemption. He, he makes a path of righteousness for that, as individuals, as well as in marriage. So when God looks down upon man, and he sees that uh, our ideal isn't being met, scripture, scripture uses the phrase, due to the hardness of your hearts, God gave this uh, certificate Uh, for divorce I think what that means is is just that that because we have not allowed God to be the authority in our life because we have not allowed God to be the Lord in our life and come underneath that the result is disobedience and the result is destruction and then it's doubly bad in marriage because you have two people who haven't done that or perhaps you have one who is continuing to strive for that holiness but you have another that you can't control that has not come underneath the authority of God and so God sees the the hardness of hearts God sees the the devastation and he hates that but it's much like he hates murder or sin uh, death sickness lying anything that distorts God's God's image his perfect plan I believe he hates but yet how often in the scriptures or what is the message of the gospel that God enters into situations that he hates to accomplish what he loves and so I think this passage of scripture or our our view of marriage and and divorce can can fit within that framework that says the reason divorce is wrong is because it misses the picture of God's love and of of Christ the groom Perfectly loving his church and the church uh, Trusting and fully surrendering with an attitude of, of Submission towards Christ and he's saying the reason I hate that is because it mars the image But listen the action of divorce. I don't believe is always wrong Just like we would say that God is always for life and Scriptures say thou shalt not murder But if you look into the Old Testament You see in uh, 1 Samuel 15 and 18, it's when the Lord, I'll read it to you. And the Lord sent Saul, he was uh, Israel's leader, on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight them until they are consumed. He gives him a direction to destroy, to kill, to wipe out the Amalekites. Why? Because in their disobedience, they were destroying God's people. And Saul doesn't do it. And so Samuel, the prophet of God, says, Why have you disobeyed God and have not killed King Agag? And so then Samuel, it says this, He hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord. Now that's difficult. So how can God say, Thou shalt not murder? And then the man of God and by God's command does this those are difficult and I think we get in trouble again if we if we cherry pick that out and if we think in an isolated way without surrounding ourselves with the whole canon of scripture and with brothers and sisters who are rooted in the word to try to try to understand and make sense and apply things like that and I think the same is true for for marriage and divorce thou shall not lie right where God is all about truth in fact it says God is truth But yet a modern-day example would be Nazi Germany believes that all Jews and many others should be wiped off the face of the earth. So they engage in, in murder and destruction and killing and genocide a group of people which we would say that is not even close to the truth of God. So in the way that they live they are declaring a lie. Yet if they come to an individual who is hiding Jews that individual is hiding jews for the sake of aligning themselves with the truth of god that he is for life and the nazi germany says are you hiding jews and they say no who is closer to the truth so though they declare no on face value say whoa that that's a lie they're declaring truth with loving people and so again we need to be very careful that we look at the spirit and God's intent behind these rules and these laws as opposed to one simple phrase. Jeremiah 3.8 says this, God speaking, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce, and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. And if you read through the the book of Jeremiah, what you see is uh, Israel, God's bride, continually over and over and over and over committing adultery the scripture says whoring herself out over and over and over and over and so at, at a point god says i'm sending you away because of what you're doing but then the rest of the book is god allowing the consequences of israel's actions deep and long suffering for their adultery. He's allowing a long, long road of repentance and he's allowing time for that repentance to play itself out and then he stands in faithfulness and ushers her back in to win his bride again for his name's sake. Again, I think it's worth looking at how God approaches his people but even that, I believe, if we take the book of Jeremiah or Jeremiah 3.8 and we pull that out without the rest of the counsel of God, we're going to get in trouble. And I don't think we're handling the word correctly and I think we will apply it incorrectly to our lives. And so we would do well to search all that scripture has about marriage and divorce and to not do this in an isolated fashion to figure out where we stand. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that you you can't apply all of that to every little situation so we need to be very very careful how we handle this topic I know many of you who have been divorced or are going through divorce I know many of you have have um, searched and examined the scriptures with all of your heart to find out what God is having you do here's what I know if we read this piece of scripture and we read the rest of scripture we know that God never ever lowers his holy standard and the sacredness of marriage. Hebrews said that let marriage be held in the highest honor. And he never compromises that. So I believe that divorce is not God's ideal. It's not his desired will. But I also believe that God allows or permits or makes concession for divorce in limited circumstances that are highly regulated. And I think he does that out of love. And I think in fact, simultaneously, God can hate divorce and then graciously and mercifully allow a concession. And I think it's not unlike many things in the gospel. Again, we're all made in the image of God, designed to reflect him. And because of our sin and our disobedience, we have perverted and marred and distorted that image. So Jesus does what he always does. He enters into our terrible state. He enters into a terrible situation. He enters into a terrible condition. He enters into a terrible marriage, and he makes the best of it. And he provides hope in it for us as individuals and as an entire species who have been unfaithful to him. And so I think it is possible for God to simultaneously hate divorce as well as graciously give concessions very carefully and allowance so that we don't do what many times the Pharisees did, take the word of God and apply it to entrap people, to further our own selfish gain, to deal fraudulently with each other, and then to hold some piece of scripture over their head to bind them. Read, read through how, how God, how Jesus on earth interacts with the Pharisees when he sees them mishandle the word of God and then lay it as a yoke of burden on others. He doesn't take it lightly at all. Because God's heart is to love us. And when we trust his love, we will obey his commands. When we trust his love, we will walk by faith in obedience. And we walk by faith in obedience, we will, we will love people well. We will love our spouses well. And so as Jesus kind of wraps this up, I think for the most part he's saying, the only way you're going to possibly reflect me is if you receive my forgiveness if you receive my righteousness, if you receive my Holy Spirit, and then if you bend your knee and follow me everywhere that you go and in everything that you do. So I believe his plea is follow me, follow Jesus into marriage, follow Jesus into singleness, follow Jesus with your sexuality, follow Jesus with the way you treat your spouse, follow Jesus into divorce, follow Jesus into remarriage, follow Jesus into remaining single. All of these things that God lays out of his ways, he says, first and foremost, you must allow me to be the authority in your life, and I will inform what is right and what is wrong. And he will never, ever, ever compromise this, but it is very challenging at times in certain situations with different pieces of scripture to understand how that applies. And so we pray for his mercy and we pray for his grace and we do this together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for not leaving us uh, alone to try to navigate life. I thank you for invading Uh, the terror that we create in our disobedience and speaking life into it, speaking hope into it, speaking redemption into it. I pray that we would be a people who continue to exalt your truth and your grace and we would recognize how those two things kiss one another in beautiful harmony and that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to walk that out in the way that we approach our spouses, in the way that we approach each other, in the way that we approach singles, uh, divorces, uh, remarriages, God, I ask for your mercy and your grace that you would teach and inform uh, everything that we do in the area of marriage and divorce and let us continue to handle your word carefully and continue to bend our knee to you knowing that you alone are good and you alone are God and we are desperate for you. Amen.